Pastor Jason, student pastor, uh, shared these um, shared this with the students last week, I believe. My daughter uh, came home and was telling me about it. In fact, she said it was the best sermon she'd ever heard you preach, Jason. Where, where are you, Jason? Huh? Hiding? Oh, thank you. There you are. Okay. These are pickup lines. Okay? So I thought I'd, I'd start our session on true love by reading a few of them to you. Jason, send them over to me. Guys, get ready. You might want to make notes. These are great lines. Are you okay? Because heaven is a long fall from here. Oh. Here's another one. Baby, if you were words on a page, you'd be the fine print. That's good, isn't it? (laughs) Can I borrow a quarter? I want to call your mother and thank her. Is there an airport nearby or is that just my heart taking off? Some of these you might not want to try. (laughs) Here's one. You must be Jamaican because you're Jamaican me crazy. (laughs) Do you have a map? Because I keep getting lost in your eyes. Oh, that's good, isn't it? There's one more. If I could rearrange the alphabet, I would put you and I together. Jason actually tried these in high school. One girl felt so sorry for him, she married him, right? To help him make it through life. Karen, with God, all things are possible, okay? (laughs) How do you go from pickup lines like, I get lost in your eyes, to I I don't want to be around you anymore, period. How do you go from that to what one couple um, I read about just this past week They've found, they believe, their perfect match, according to a French press release. Their true love they discovered in an internet chat room. They were both married at the time. They met online. And they were online because they decided that their spouses were not providing the happiness they deserved. So they went online searching for love. The woman's chat room name was Sweetie, and her newfound love was called online Prince of Joy. Humble guy, you can tell right away. But anyhow, they corresponded for hours, sharing with one another the troubles they were having in their respective marriages. Sweetie was 27 at the time. She later told the French press that she had finally found a a kindred spirit, her true love, her Prince of Joy. She said, and I quote her, I was suddenly in love all over again, and it was amazing. My prince understood me perfectly. We both knew that we could share a friendship we both deserved, and we were both stuck in miserable marriages and wanted out. We were the perfect match. So they decided to meet, this article says, and have their first date. All the arrangements were made, excuses presented to their respective spouses as to why they'd be away for the evening. Then at their place of rendezvous, they met, only to discover they were married to one another. (laughs) Sweetie and Prince of Joy were already husband and wife. The miserable marriage they had been describing was their own to each other. They were finally in love. 
only to discover their self-deception and self-centeredness had caused them to ignore a relationship they already had and could have been enjoying. Imagine the irony of their blindness. Did the truth sink in? No, according to this report, this couple is now divorcing, accusing each other of being unfaithful. They need help, really. So much for finding true love. How does something like this happen? How do you chip away at a relationship, either in marriage or in ministry or industry? How do you go from I get lost in your eyes to get lost? How do you go from for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, in, in sickness and in health, to I despise this person and I want to leave them. It's actually downright easy to get there. It all begins when a person decides to abandon agape and pursue the loves of the world. Do you remember those loves from earlier sessions? Storge is that Greek word for love that says... In general terms, I love you because you're in my family and I'm supposed to love you even though I don't like you. I love you. You know, I'll sing at your funeral, but I you know, don't want to go on vacation with you. Christmas is hard enough, right? Another common word for love is philia, which says I love you because you love everything I love. We love the same music. We both love to hike, uh, travel. We both love crossword puzzles, the same design and furniture. In fact, our initials, when you put them together, spell honey or sugar. Eros says, I love you because you make my heart beat fast and you meet my needs. Agape, however, is this new term found outside of Scripture, not even in one clear illustration, but the pages of Scripture are filled with it. This is the selfless intellectual commitment of the life and heart to serve and meet the needs of another. Agape says, I love you and will commit my heart to meeting your needs. Agape is a relationship that is laced with grace. Agape is a church body marked with humility and deference. Agape is a marriage without a back door. Everybody wants this kind of love. Don't they? The internet chat room promised it. People are searching for it. And people want to be loved by it. I really believe, after studying these words even further, that, that philia and eros and storge are really nothing more than the longing for agape to undergird them. How come so few have it? Well, in the next phrase of 1 Corinthians 13, Paul will answer that question. And in the process, he will deliver an assignment that effectively keeps agape alive. As you're turning to 1 Corinthians 13, I, I warn you, this is one of the toughest assignments in the list. It's only for those who are willing to surrender to pursue this lifestyle of love. This lifestyle that Paul said at the end of chapter 12 is the most excellent pursuit of life. This is the most excellent way to live. 
The assignment to keeping agape alive, I'll tell you ahead of time, is in refusing to keep score. Paul writes in the very last phrase of verse 5, where we left off our study, agape does not take into account a wrong suffered. Oh my. Now you know why we struggle with loving like this. Because we naturally keep a running score. You know, you create a a mental file room where you store all the offenses and injuries and hurts and you oil the hinges on those doors so they can slide open easily and, and often. The loves of the world keep a record of wrongs. Resentment has an absolutely amazing memory. The verb Paul uses here is actually an accounting term that refers to making entries in a ledger. It literally can mean to count, to add up, to impute to an account. It's one of Paul's favorite words. You could translate this particular phrase here uh, this way. Agape, this kind of love, does not keep books on evil. Agape refuses to tally points It refuses to record offenses in a mental file. It refuses to keep a journal of injustices. It it refuses to maintain some, some sort of silent witness against the injuries and the wounds of life. I said it would be a tough assignment. But this is how you go from loving someone and wanting to leave someone. You keep a list. Nearby. This is what breaks down relationships and friendships. One author wrote One of the fine arts in life is to learn what to forget. There is the the tribal custom of the Polynesians where many of the men are embroiled in either fighting or feasting. It is customary for them to keep certain items to remind them of their enemies and their hatred for them. They literally suspend articles from the interior roofs of their huts to keep alive the memory of their wrongs. Now, we wouldn't do that, would we? According to the Bible, accepting the assignment not to keep a record of wrongs is is actually the same kind of thing, and it's vital to developing and experiencing true love. No one is exempt from the challenge of this assignment, by the way. Because everyone in this auditorium has been hurt by some form of evil or some kind of of unkindness. Everyone has to struggle with forgiveness. Everyone has to let go of bad memories and give up any desire or even the imagination of revenge. But the truth remains. Naturally, we, we enjoy nursing old wounds, don't we? We enjoy nursing our wrath to keep it warm. Agape says, fire the nurse. Move her out. She set up shop in your heart and she's doing great damage. The choice between becoming a loving person and a resentful person is found in this little phrase. Love does not take into account a wrong suffered. We tend to 
to put our slights and injuries and offenses against us in a pot on a stove and let it simmer. And whenever you get the chance, you go by that pot and you do what? You stir it. One of the things I love about Christmas is my wife pulls out this special recipe for hot chocolate. She got it from a a woman in in our church, and uh, she introduced it to us one day when we were in their home. It's the best hot chocolate I have ever tasted. It's kept in a big pot on the stove, and it just simmers all day long. And the house is filled with the smell of, of chocolate. It's made of just the right ingredients of evaporated milk and sugar and cocoa. I, I don't know what all. I've never watched my wife make it. I just stand there with my mug like a beggar <laughs> waiting for her to get it ready. So good. If you're interested, Marcia back here after the service will, will sell it to you, okay? <laughs> for hundreds of dollars. Don't forget that, honey. You just walk by the stove and, and, and every once in a while and you stir it. I'm afraid that's what we do with the disappointments of life. Paul says here, in effect, agape will refuse to, to simmer hurts on the stove of your heart. Agape refuses to walk over and stir the pot. Once you've re-stirred the pot, it, it comes more quickly to a boil, a debt that you can't seem to pay off that wasn't yours to begin with. It plagues you. A parent or a boss or a coach that was unfair. Prejudice or partiality that brought you pain. A board member that made your life miserable. A jury that found the innocent guilty, the guilty innocent. A business partner failing to act with integrity and and smearing your reputation. A doctor making the wrong diagnosis. The other guy or gal at work that got the credit you deserved. A neighbor who treats you rudely. A friend who turned on you. A child or a parent who won't speak to you. True love refuses the urge to write that stuff down for keeps. It will not take into account a wrong suffered. It will not put it into the ledger. What this means is you've got to keep a a mental eraser handy, a, a big one. And you've got to be ready to use it often, daily, as a matter of fact, sometimes moment by moment. Otherwise, your ledger will easily fill up over time. And every day, there are new additions of wrong that can be added to the list. That ledger fills up. This assignment here is not difficult. It is impossible. We're always losing our eraser, aren't we? Or it wears down. We got plenty of pencil left. I love that scene where Peter asked the Lord, Lord, how often should a man forgive someone who offends him? Seven times? Peter's patting himself on the back because the rabbis of Christ's day were teaching that a righteous man would forgive an offense from the same person three times. So Peter doubles it, throws one in for good measure and says, Lord, 
you know, I, I suppose since we're following you and you are the Messiah, that we ought to, we ought to uh, you know, forgive people seven times. That'd be good, wouldn't it? And the Lord said to him, I tell you, forgive that man 70 times. Seven. And you can kind of see Peter doing the math. Uh, 490 times. No wonder Luke, in his gospel account, records that immediately after Jesus Christ said that, all of them said to the Lord, Lord, increase our faith. (laughs) That's the biblical way of saying, you've got to be kidding. 490 times. The Lord's point was this, don't carry a calculator. You know, as, as soon as you hit 490, that's it. We're done. No, forgive, he is saying, as a way of life. Can you imagine the same person offending you in the same way 490 times? The point is, don't keep a record. Don't hold a grudge as a matter of practice. Don't don't add up this account in your heart as a matter of surrender to the Spirit of God. You know what the disciples were thinking probably then? How in the world are we going to get an eraser that big to demonstrate that kind of grace and forgiveness? Lord, we don't make erasers that big in Galilee. And so the Lord will go on, and he will tell them in that account that when you recognize what God has chosen to forget regarding your own account, it'll actually help you in forgiving others Because no one has sinned against you as much as you have sinned against him. And so he tells them a story. He says uh, there was a king on one occasion that was settling his accounts with his employees. And he had one particular employee who owed him 10,000 talents. Since the man was unable to repay the king, the king ordered that this man and all his family be sold as slaves until they could... He could be repaid and the money would go back into the kingdom. This man was desperate for mercy and he cried to the king, please, please forgive me, have mercy on me. And and the king had compassion and literally wiped the debt off the books, cleared his ledger. By the way, a talent was equivalent in that day to 15 years of labor, 10,000 talents. It's 150,000 years of labor. There's no way that man could have ever paid the king back. In fact, there's really no way he could have ever gotten that much money unless he had stolen it from the king. Obviously, the only hope for this man was an act of love, and the king gave it. So the man gets up from his knees, and he walks out, and as he's walking out, he bumps into another employee who who owed him 100 denarii. That's three months worth of labor. And he said, pay me back. And the guy said, I can't. Please have mercy on me. He said, no chance. Threw him in prison until he could repay him. And the king heard, hauled that employee back in before him and said, you've missed something here. To help you remember, I'll hand you over to the torturers until you can repay me. See, here's the point. 
Are you having trouble erasing the debt of offenses against you? If, if you and I have trouble in that area, we must have forgotten our offenses against Christ. The debt he wiped off the books for us. You see, this is the gospel of agape. Paul used the same word, by the way, that he used in 1 Corinthians 13. doesn't ledger some offense. He used it in Romans 4.8. Listen to this amazing erasure of redemption. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. Same word used for the action of agape in 1 Corinthians 13.5. Blessed is the man. That's an understatement. Blessed is the man whose sins have literally been erased from the ledger of God's accounting. Paul used the same verb again when he wrote to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 5.19. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their sins against them. In other words, those who are reconciled to God through Christ have had their files of sin cleared out. Beloved, your record is completely clean because of his great love in atoning for your record of sin. In fact, however, as I thought about this, the ledger isn't completely clear. If you take a closer look, in the place of sins which we have committed against God is the deposit of Christ's righteousness which has been imputed, same word, translated a little differently, to our account. The same accounting word. The righteousness of Christ has been credited. It has entered into our personal account in the ledger of God, Romans 4.11. That's like taking your checkbook and, and discovering as you look at it, you don't have any money. You don't have to use your imagination for this illustration, okay? You're, you're flat broke. Then you go to the bank to ask them if they'll not charge you overdraft fees because it took three days before you realized you were overdrawn. I'm speaking hypothetically here, just coming to my mind. But the bank manager comes out, shakes your hand, gives you a handful of candy. He's smiling. Now, that's never happened before. And you say, well, well, what are you so happy about? He says, oh, listen, evidently, Bill Gates got your account number and transferred into your empty account all of his wealth. Imagine now the, the readout fresh from the teller, the banker standing right there. You see a deposit, a, a billion dollars plus. <laughs> oh my goodness. You, you can drive right past the dollar store now. You can go straight to Target. You're loaded with cash. Can you imagine that? Listen, Jesus Christ credited to your account the wealth of his righteousness. You didn't have any. All you had in that account was sin. He withdrew that and paid all the administrative fees against you. And then he deposited, he transferred his righteousness. He imputed it, he credited it, he deposited it into your account. Same word used in 1 Corinthians 13. Now let me ask a practical question. Does, does forgiving mean forgetting? Can anyone truly forget offenses and insults and hurts and pains? No. 
Paul doesn't say, look again in 1 Corinthians, he doesn't say, don't ever get hurt. Don't be offended. Ignore the pain. He says, keep your eraser moving. Choose to love, which means choose to forget. That's different. Webster, a believer, caught the biblical nuance of this word when he defined the word forget. Listen to this. To cease to remember. To leave behind. To fail to think of. To neglect either carelessly or willfully. To cease thinking of something. It can be an act of the will. This is the willing forgetfulness of offenses. We tend to record our offenses in granite and our blessings in sand, don't we? And at what great cost to our peace of mind and to the joy of our salvation. Wayne Grudem, writing specifically to a church setting, which of course works in other settings, but he says this, where love abounds in a fellowship of Christians, many small offenses and even some large ones are overlooked and forgotten. But where love is lacking, every word is viewed with suspicion. Every action is liable to misunderstanding and conflicts abound. This works not just in the church, but in the home, in the marriage, on the campus, in the shop, in the neighborhood, and in the boardroom. Can we learn how to love like this? Yes. In fact, it's no coincidence that the Spirit of God would inspire Peter of all apostles. (laughs) He would be the one to write, keep fervent in your love for one another because love, agape, covers a multitude of what? Of sins. You say, but I just can't forget. I just can't seem to cover it up. You're right. You can't. Agape is impossible. This assignment might be the toughest one in your life for you to surrender to the Spirit who will himself accomplish it in your life. Why? Because he happens to be a great forgetter. Hebrews chapter 8 verse 12 speaks of him who chooses to remember our transgressions no more. That means he's choosing to forget. He's ceasing to remember willfully. He's choosing to neglect the thought of, the record of our sin. Jeremiah 31, 34, God says, I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. Does God forget anything? No. He's choosing to act as if the ledger is indeed, in fact, clear and clean. He is willfully choosing not to remember. There's some insight in that story, wonderful biography of Joseph who was offended and hurt and abandoned 
his own brothers, no less. What we often overlook is that when Joseph and his wife had their first baby, they had a son. They named him Manasseh. That Hebrew name means to forget. The record in Genesis makes sure we understand the significance of this event and and how he was able to make such a statement of faith. He had so much to never get over. But Genesis 41, verse 51 records, And Joseph named the firstborn Manasseh, for he said, God has made me forget all my trouble. Do you think Joseph remembered it? Absolutely. What he's saying is he was choosing to leave it behind. Beloved, we allow God to do the erasing. When we surrender to his spirit, when we refuse to keep score, we actually end up winning, don't we? Peace, joy, release, freedom, we ultimately win. The one who keeps a list will only break his heart over and over again. He's going to relive that offense. He's going to feel over and over again the pain of that insult or that injury. Agape is the key to escape the prison cell of our own making that leads us to bitterness and resentment. Agape is the way out. It is the way on. It is the way up. It is the only way. Every week, this author wrote, Kevin Tunnel was required to mail one dollar to a family he'd hurt deeply. This article read they had sued him for $1.5 million, but settled for $936 to be paid to them one dollar at a time. The family was to receive the payments over the course of 18 years. They didn't want to forget what he'd done. He'd gotten drunk. He drove his car into their daughter's car, killing her on the first Friday of January. Tunnel was convicted of manslaughter, spent time in jail, Seven years campaigning against drunken driving, even though the courts required only one year. He added six years to it. But he often, often forgot to send his dollar to this family in time. Four times the family took him to court. He insisted he wasn't defying the order. He, he even offered to give the family two boxes of checks made out covering the payments until the year 2001. An extra year thrown in. They denied his request. They didn't want him to forget. They didn't want to forgive. It wasn't about money. It was a weekly reminder they wanted to haunt him with. 936 reminders over the course of 18 years to haunt him wherever he lived wherever he went, that he had taken their daughter's life, there would be no forgetting and certainly no forgiving. This author asked, few people would question the resentment of this family and their grief. 
But are 936 payments enough? When they receive the final payment, will they be able to put the matter to rest? Who hasn't really been able to forget? Is 18 years worth of restitution sufficient? And the answer would be no. This family had sentenced themselves to a life of private haunting. They were the ongoing victims. And every Friday for 18 years... They suffered all over again their hatred toward this young man. When I read that, I thought of how grateful we ought to be, ladies and gentlemen, that God doesn't require us to pay back our offenses against him one dollar at a time, one prayer at a time, one act of penance at a time. This is the agape of God against whom we have sinned. This is the forgiveness of Jesus Christ, whom we put to death. This is the amazing nature of him choosing to forget the weight of our offenses, that it was my sin. Oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole is nailed to the cross and I can forget about it. I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh my soul. Listen, the willingness to accept this assignment of agape and live with an eraser handy comes only when we stay near the cross of Christ and recognize our own sin which he has chosen to forget and then imitate him. Without Christ, we cannot love like this. We can't even begin. We cannot experience true love until we experience the love of Christ. And then to demonstrate that love requires surrender to the Spirit of God toward those who have sinned against us. I close with this prose. We are most like wild animals when we devour and kill. We are most like men when we criticize and condemn. We are most like Christ when we forgive and choose to forget. Father, thank you for the treasure of your word, and the deep challenge to our hearts today. There isn't any way we can begin to apply this daily without having our minds and our hearts transformed. Our ledgers fill up quickly. It sours, it destroys, it robs, and ultimately we are handed over to the torturers. We're plagued. We continually rehash and suffer the offenses. 
until we release them to you. Spirit of the living God, we need you to fall afresh on us. In that sense, not of some new Pentecost, but of fresh surrender and fresh domination and control to keep our erasers handy in this fellowship with relationships in this church, in the home, in the marriage, in the neighborhood, at work. You have asked us by this description to again engage in the impossible. Would you first make us willing? Thank you for your grace and that every time we fail, there can be a fresh start. Make us great forgetters. Make us good forgivers so that ultimately you are glorified and this world is given an example of remarkable love that is remarkably different. Why don't you just sit there for a moment and do business with the Lord quietly with your heads bowed just for a moment. Maybe God has brought something to your mind. Why don't you do business with him now and then we'll close in a moment. It's a great chorus. Spirit of the living God, fall fresh on me. Spirit of the living God, fall fresh on me. Stand and let's just sing this quietly. Spirit of the is for him to be Lord saying he
Father, that we surrender to you, Spirit of God, to make this kind of agape work in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.